what can the late 1970s tell us about today's economic situation? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, our resident monetary historian, time traveler, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, you started out a recent essay at Real Clear Markets, which was posted today, April 16th. The title is History Isn't on Your Side If You're Looking for Inflation. And you started out by bringing us to November 1978. Now, I took a little bit of time to find out what happened that particular month, just to set the scene for our audience. And it is all positively depressing. It was a bad time, Jeff. That particular month, some very memorable things happened. I'm not going to bring them up because that's no way to start out the show. Let's then just go straight into your article and your story. What was happening in November 1978 in the United States, President Carter, the economy, the monetary situation? It's kind of odd because it's exactly the opposite of the title of the of the essay, which is that history isn't on your side today with regard to the inflation case. But in November 1978, as most people probably know, it absolutely was on their side. In fact, it was so much on their side that government authorities, even just regular person on the piece, just wanted it to regular person on the street just wanted it to stop. You know, there was so much inflation. Nobody knew really where it was coming from, how it was manifesting, how it was getting worse year after year after year after year. And of course, President Carter, who was elected in 76, came into office largely pledging to be the guy who finally solved the big problem. And I know looking back, you know, as I said in the article, looking back from our, our post-Cold War perch, we think that, you know, during that time period, our biggest concerns were the Soviet Union, the spread of communism, nuclear war, all those kinds of things. But in the 1970s, especially the late 1970s, you know, people really were not focused on those things. They were focused on their kitchen table, which was the price of everything, everything going up by double digits, you know, year after year. At the same time, that unemployment was rising, which was supposed to be an impossibility, certainly the impossibility that the economists had said from derived from A.W. Phillips's work in the Phillips curve, the idea that inflation and an unemployment could be both rising together. Suddenly you had this worst case, seemingly nightmare scenario in the late seventies where you had lots of unemployed workers where the prices of everything went up year after year after year. And here was president Carter saying, I'm going to stop. It. I'm going to end it. I'm going to do this. And he explained being in tune, being a politician and he was, aware of this concern, and he explained that he was going to look for a way to arrest the currency's devaluation, loss of value, devaluation, too strong a word, but it was losing value relative to other currencies, relative to gold, famously, and so he convened a commission, a group, to come up with a plan of how to stop that, but you say because the because President Carter said that this was an undeserved depreciation. But in your article, you say the dollar's downward dive was unreservedly deserved as the necessary consequence of prolonged official incompetence. I think most people would say, okay, it's deserved because interest rate differentials. They wouldn't say, well, it's the officials that have been messing it up. And I guess I mentioned it earlier, gold. Is this somehow related to Nixon going off the gold standard? Is that the official incompetence you're referencing? 
No, but that's the official story. The official story is that President Nixon closed the gold window in August of 1971, which he did. Absolutely. That absolutely did happen. But that didn't mean nearly as much as we're, we're told to believe today. And it certainly didn't mean much back then. You have to understand back at that period, we had just been under or we had been under, you know, the world had been under a fixed exchange rate system for a very, very long time. That's most that's all most people knew. And the idea was, OK, if we let currencies float, we let their prices fluctuate based on market conditions, that will alleviate some of these foreign monetary pressures that we can't really explain. That Robert Triffin said a decade before was, you know, the, the incompatibility of national currency with the global reserve system, Triffin's paradox. So the idea was that we'll let dollar, we'll let currencies float, including the dollar. The exchange value will be determined by the market, and that will alleviate these pressures. And of course, we, we fast forward to 1978. What President Carter was saying is not only do we have inflation, not only do we have high employment, now the U.S. dollar is diving. And I think you know devaluation is not a too strong a word, Emil. I think it was absolutely appropriate because the dollar was losing value against most currencies very rapidly, as it was another kick in the teeth, another sign to Americans that this our system is going completely haywire, and nobody has any answers for it. So you can understand both. Carter's urgency, as well as why he was in the dark about it, because the official story, you know, economists that had kept coming forward throughout the 1970s with one plan after another, none of them working. He was just basically kind of trying to throw things, uh, throw things at the wall and see what, see what would possibly work. And most of what it came down to was actually contained in his infamous crisis of confidence speech that came six months later, which he basically blamed America, said, hey, this is all your fault. You need to be more confident in the way things are. And that's what really our problem is. I mean, the crisis of confidence speech is one of the top worst speeches any president has ever given. And this is you know, another reason why, because it wasn't our fault. It wasn't America's fault. It was the fact that these people had no idea what they were doing. And the idea was, well, if we show that we're going to arrest the dollar's decline, that will be the thing that stops inflation. And so we'll issue these Carter bonds or what came to be called Carter bonds, and that will help stop the dollar's decline and that will they'll get inflation under control and we'll get the, the economy back in order. Now, the Carter bonds is immediately ahead of this character that I wanna introduce into our play here. And the, the character is Robert Rusa, who gave a very interesting quote that about a decade later, that spoke to the unintended consequences of letting the currencies float. I'm gonna read it out, quote, under the fixed rate capital flows, wait, this is hard to hear, under the fixed rate system, capital flows were expected to play a subsidiary role, tending to reinforce an already impending exchange rate adjustment brought about by comparative price changes and shifts in trade. But under conditions of floating, capital flows have more and more become the prime determinants of exchange rates, thereby imposing on the current account the burden not only of adjusting for changes in relative prices or trading potentials, but also of overcompensating for excesses induced by capital flows. Very wordy. But it's a key critical point that I think ties back to present day, not too long ago when President Trump was implementing his trade war tariffs, quote unquote. And he was trying to fix the balance of payments by it affecting the trade account, the current account. But here, 
decades ago, Robert Rusa, and then M Michael Pettis brings this up every time. It's the capital account that drives it all. Yeah, it's, it's the global monetary system. That was Rusa's segue into that. And really that's what Carter bonds were intended to be too. Let's be, you know, go, go back and, and you know, explain what those were. Carter intended to issue in November 1970, well not, you know, November 1978 into 1979, $10 billion of US treasury debt obligations, but they were not normal US treasury debt obligations. They were borrowing in, in, in German marks and Swiss francs. And it wasn't because they're trying to finance the deficit. It was because they needed to borrow these foreign currencies because the Federal Reserve and the Exchange Stabilization Fund had run out of ammunition <laughs> trying to intervene in currency markets throughout the 70s, particularly in 1978 up to that point. The Federal Reserve had maxed out essentially its swap line. I think the uh, uh, Anna Schwartz had said it was something like five and a half billion dollars, which in 1978 was a massive amount for the Fed to be um, a Fed liability to other central banks in terms of currency swaps. So the Carter bonds were on one hand, sort of a shock and awe show of force to the regular person saying, look, the government's doing something huge, 10 billion in foreign currencies. We're going to build up a massive war chest to defend the dollar. How could it possibly go wrong when on, behind the scenes underneath all the while, the government in different pockets, you know, the Federal Reserve, the Exchange Stabilization Fund had been trying to defend the dollar to big, to big huge amounts to no effect. And really they needed the treasury department to essentially bail them out of their, what were really synthetically short dollar positions as the dollar was crashing. So it was, you know, incompetence that tried to be a confidence instilling in the public because obviously the problem is the public blame America for this. I mean, it's just, it's so patently absurd. It's no, it's no wonder why it didn't work. Just very well, first of all, it's embarrassing to hear that, your country has to borrow in another currency uh, bonds, just like right now emerging markets have to because people don't trust that currency, the Argentinian peso. So it's a little bit embarrassing that it led to this point that they had to borrow those francs and marks. Uh, but it was because in the 60s and 70s, not, maybe not even the 60s, in the 70s, they were trying to rescue the dollar's devaluation. And so they were in the currency markets and they had- Yeah, the remember what the, the theory was, we'll let currencies float. The next, we will not return, we will no longer return, redeem paper US dollars in gold, foreign requests. Remember the US went off the gold standard in the thirties, but the, under Bretton Woods, foreigners could redeem, foreign official accounts could redeem dollars for gold. So we're not gonna let them do that anymore. We're gonna allow the, we're gonna allow the US dollar exchange value to float. And the idea was that the market would find an equilibrium. We would find some way that the, that this would stop the, the uh, foreign, foreign monetary imbalances from contributing to the great inflation. And that just, it was, it was, it was wrong. It was, it was flat out wrong. And what so was... we paid for it for the rest of the 1970s through, rising inflation, rising unemployment, as well as now dollar devaluation that no one had anticipated because they didn't realize what was really happening is that the world had been flooded with dollars, not through the current account or merchandise trade, but through the Euro dollar system. And so the Euro dollar had been leaking back into the United States as a flood of dollars. It had been creating all sorts of imbalances all over the world. 
and you have all of these economists and central bankers and politicians flying blind, not realizing what they were doing were only making it worse. They were only contributing to imbalances by increasing frictions, by imposing externalities, arbitrary externalities that simply just made the whole situation that much worse. Jeff, can you coach me up and remind me, what was the Exchange Stabilization Fund? The Exchange Stabilization Fund is a separate entity, uh, ostensibly uh, well, used to be at that time part of the U.S. Treasury. Now it's the, most of its powers have been given over in the Monetary Control Act of 1980 to the Federal Reserve. But prior to that, it had been brought about in the 1930s as one way to combat the British who had gone off the gold standard at the early part of the Great Depression and were manipulating the British pound and the U.S. Treasury Department wanted to have some way of of operating in foreign currency markets to attend to or to attempt to intervene in U.S. dollar exchange value, which was fixed at that time, should it ever should it ever uh, happen or need to. So the Exchange Stabilization Fund had been around for many years, and it had started been to, it had started to be used more often in the early 1960s and leading up to more and more into the 1970s. Let's talk about the 1960s and let's bring in Robert Triffin. You say in your article that monetary officials were already struggling in the 1960s to combat this external force of dollars, how to reconcile it. And you bring up his very famous, and then you say, though incomplete paradox. Tell us why Triffin's dilemma, as it was presented, why was it incomplete? Well, what Triffin never, well, actually, he did realize later later on, in fact, I think he was at the same conference that we just referenced with Robert mm -hmm. Russo in 1984, talking about the same thing that Robert Russo was, which was Eurodollar. Mm -hmm. In the early, late 50s, early 1960s, nobody realized that, you know, a national currency could sort of shed its skin and become an international currency while still being associated with a national currency. That's really what the Eurodollar was. The Eurodollar was technically a national currency, but it had become, at least the, the, uh, the roles and the functions of a global reserve currency were filled by an extra national currency, which was technically US dollar denominated, but it was really bank-centered liabilities and assets and all sorts of resources, which were contributing to this new sort of way of doing things. So Triffin's paradox is incomplete in that he was strictly speaking about the US dollar being a national currency it was a very poor, in fact, incompatible with uh, a global reserve currency dominated by gold and fixed exchange. So he was right about that. And then he came to realize later as Robert Russo did that, oh, well, the US dollar actually became something else we never anticipated. It, it, it transformed itself into this global currency system that is just, that, that went too far. <laughs> it went crazy for a while there. I don't think you, you told us the, Triffin Paradox uh, 101, though. Just tell us what is the paradox, and then we'll understand why, why it didn't actually account for the offshore international dollar. Right. So it is a reserve currency, which means that dollars need to be available all over the world because countries intermediate through dollars. For example, as we talked about before, if you're, you know, banking, uh, a company in Singapore needs to. Um, needs to go onto the world market and buy some resources to import into Singapore. You need dollars to do that. You can't use Singapore dollars. You have to use U.S. dollars. So U.S. dollars have to be available in Singapore and Brazil and Africa and Asia and China and everywhere else around the world, except 
in order for US dollars to be available, there has to be enough of those dollars, which means they have to be created and, and forward into the global system. But it's, since it's a national currency, at least it was envisioned to be a national currency, the US dollar, and the US dollar was exchangeable for gold reserves, too many dollars for that national system would mean too many dollars would be converted into gold, and pretty soon the US would lose all of its gold reserves. There would be no gold backing left for all of these paper dollars floating around the rest of the world. That was Triffin's paradox. So the idea is that you can't have a sound gold-backed dollar and have it also be contributing to monetary flows that allow globalization and increasing global trade. And it was absolutely true. By the late 1950s and early 1960s, that's exactly what happened. All of these dollars started to flow back and blow back onto the American system. And they were, they were converted mostly by the French into U.S. gold and the gold, U.S. system, the U.S. Uh, reserves dwindled or got drained considerably in the late 50s and early 1960s, such that it caused a problem. The difference was even in the late 50s, these were not paper dollars that were necessarily being redeemed, but redeemed, but dollar deposits and dollar balances, ledgers, and all sorts of the, the virtual currency, reserveless currency we talk about under the euro dollar system. So the Carter bonds, late 1970s, to try to save the Federal Reserve from ex overextending itself in the currency markets. But before, and that was, and why did they overextend themselves? They were trying to combat the Euro dollar system. Earlier though, in the 60s, there was an, an attempt by Robert Russo, or not by him, at least bonds were named after him or certificates. Let me read a quote here from Robert Russo, October 1963, Foreign Affairs. Quote, a crisis affecting at least one major currency has threatened each year. This is 1963. It's going to get worse. We know that. That's, it's incredible how bad it was already then. The U.S. balance of payments has been in continuous large deficit, and the stability of the convertible gold, dollar, and sterling system has been increasingly questioned. That eventually led to... Yeah, no, I want, there's, there's an important point about that, too. When Russo was speaking in 62 and 63, what he was saying is that the current account deficit was a large contributor to these, you know, the, the currency problems around the world. But if you actually go into the statistics and read some of the transcripts, as I have sadly done far too many times, what they tell you is that it was just not merchandise. It wasn't that we're importing more than we're exporting. At that time, it was called short-term capital flows. And it wasn't really short-term capital flows. It was bank deposit balances shifting back and forth with the euro dollar mark. Even in those early years, the euro dollar was having an effect, and they didn't know how to interpret this, the, the accounting. They thought this was bank shifting dollars overseas when it, that wasn't really the case. It was the euro dollar system affecting U.S. banking situation, U.S. bank balance sheets such that it created current account deficits. And that was their way of being notified that this global monetary system, this global dollar system was expanding so much that it was causing irregularities in the, in the uh, regular accounting, the traditional accounting. So here we are in the early 1960s. And as Russo said, one currency crisis after another each of these years. And what do we do about it? Because, you know, Bretton Woods fixed exchange, this stuff is all supposed to be worked out. By the way, the U.S. has lost, I think it was almost more than half of its gold reserves in the late 50s. So there were some serious, serious problems way, way, way before August of 1971 and Richard Nixon. The Rusa bonds, what do we need to know about them? Well, as all of these, you know, 
um, these currency crises that Russo was talking about arose in the early 60s, they all had one thing in common, the US dollar, because the US dollar was the global reserve and it was the intermediating currency, intermediating currency. And as I said, you know, I brought up an example in the article and you can read more detail about it, uh, a specific example with Canada. I mean, banks in Europe were invested in Canada. They soured on Canada, Canada for several reasons. And so they started to withdraw money from Canada and the, the way they did so, they didn't convert from Canadian dollars into German marks or Swiss francs, they intermediated through the US dollar. So that brought the Federal Reserve and the US Treasury into what was a, supposed to be a Canadian European affair because by very nature of the global reserve currency. And what the Federal Reserve decided to do in those, in that, those early years of the 60s is they got involved with the BIS and all sorts of other central banks like the Swiss National Bank and Bundesbank and decided to swap a bunch of currency, uh, currency debt. So the swap stuff that we talked about in the late 70s actually started out in the early 60s. In the early 60s, they were attempting essentially to create the illusion of stability and control in the Bretton Woods version of the dollar so as to maintain the Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods version of the dollar as long as they could while not being forced to convert more gold from these dollars, overseas dollars. So it was a way of trying to manage these imbalances with their fingers crossed, just hoping they would go away. And what Robert Russo said was, look, this stuff is just getting worse. What we need to do is, all right, the Fed has reached, it's getting close to its maximum. It can't, it, it, it doesn't have the statutory authority to roll over swaps into the long run. It has some authority and it's, you know, it was kind of questionable authority at that time, whether they can intervene in foreign currency markets like they were, especially so, um, so, uh, um, you know, sort of disingenuous as it was trying to hide all of this negative dollar stuff. Uh, so what Robert Russo says, the Treasury needs to get involved, we'll issue these debt certificates that will essentially bail out the Fed swap lines. So essentially, it was exactly like the Carter bond scheme in the late 70s that it was for, first developed in the early 1960s to essentially take the 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 burden of currency swap debt off of the central bank, which can't have it, it's off the burden of the exchange stabilization fund, which is hor horribly mismanaged, and have the Treasury Department essentially term out those liabilities so that currency interventions don't necessarily add to the imbalances that are already plaguing all of these currencies. The 1960s currency swap echoes a little bit the corporate bond purchases of last year and the questions as to whether or not the Federal Reserve has the authority to be involved at all. And But if you contort yourself and you squint your eyes at the legal legalese, yeah, yeah, you can make it work. 13.3 is very broad. It's, it's the Federal Reserve Act. It has become very broad. And it's really, hey, if we say something's an emergency, we can do whatever we need to do. And really, nobody's ever called the Fed on it because the Fed's independent uh, and nobody will ever say, but, you know, maybe did that actually work? Did you actually need to do that? Nobody that's never that kind of accountability has never been imposed. And this is not something that just, you know, as you pointed out, this is not just something for, you know, to consider for 2020 or 2021. We're talking about the 1960s here. This is 60 some odd years ago, 60 years ago, six decades of all of this stuff. Now we're going to link it back to present day, all of these stories, just after I read this quote from the 40th anniversary of Bretton Woods. There was a conference, and Jeff, if we had a hall of fame of quotes, this quote from Robert Rusa 
would be in the Hall of Fame. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it because it's so important. Here we go. One improvisation after another was attempted in order to preserve or restore confidence in the credibility of the dollar as a reliable standard of value and medium of exchange capable of assuring stability in the payment relations throughout an expanding world. But this combination of improvisations could not cope with and indeed may have contributed to the enormous expansion in markets for U.S. dollars offshore and the new networks of interbank relations that made possible the creation of additional supplies of dollars outside of the United States and beyond the control of the Federal Reserve. Mic drop. If central bankers and, and uh, monetary officials did have microphones, he would just drop and walk off the stage. That's it. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I what's really important about, there's lots of things that are important about that. That's why it's such an important quote. quote. But in the context of what we're talking about now, what he's basically saying is that's how you explain 20 years of this stuff never being solved. From the early 1960s, it got worse, it got worse, progressively worse, progressively worse. Not only did the currency problem get progressively worse, the economic problems got progressively worse because of it, because you couldn't solve the monetary problems. The U.S. economy, not just the U.S. economy, the entire global economy suffered under almost two decades of this great inflation, which was a horrible period in time. It's really, I think to most people nowadays, they don't they don't realize because we've been taught that the central bank is this 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 ideal technocratic you know, model that we should all hope, you know, run our own lives based on this, their example, because they're the most, you know, they're the the positive best exemplar of how to do these kinds of things when that's really never been the case the federal reserve's entire history has been one failure one huge failure after another what happened in the 1960s and 70s actually typifies how the federal reserve has been run since its very beginning you know the 1920s not ex i mean yeah it was, it was the roaring 20s but it set us up for the 1930s which the federal reserve never saw coming didn't positively impact contributed to it but continuing to be worse so over the fed's entire history it has been right quote unquote only by accident on a few occasions and for much of its history as robert russo was saying and not just robert russo all the robert triffin too for much of the Fed's history, it has been a bungling agency, more like the Keystone Cops than anything like what we're taught today with, you know, Alan Greenspan's put and all of the rest of the myth and lore about a competent Fed, don't fight the Fed and all this other crap. Jeff, I'd like you to take us out and explain the key takeaways of this essay now. But before you do, you know, another reason why I think that quote is very important, because it seems to me that conference was the last outpost of monetary scholarship where the euro dollar was of interest. After this conference, at least that I'm aware of, it seems like it, it became a desert. Before, before the conference, people were asking, what do we do with this euro dollar system? It's important, it's big, what are we gonna do? After this, silence. And we don't hear anything again for like a decade until Greenspan says, in his 96 speech, if I remember correctly, that, uh, you know, irrational exuberance, but that it's a, the, the end of scholarship. That's 
That's my. Yeah, it was, it was the beginning of the uh, the Paul Volcker myth that the Fed actually, you know, Paul Volcker supposedly solved the Great Inflation, and that's that's another topic we can get into some other day. That a, a determined central bank is the answer to all of our problems, and it was Volcker and then Greenspan that cultivated that myth through the quote unquote Great Moderation, which wasn't all that moderate to begin <laughs> with, which was nothing more than the euro dollar system maturing and spreading out to the rest of the world and doing lots of good things as well as lots of bad things, which the good things central banks took credit for and the bad things they said didn't happen. And that really cultivated this myth of the competent modern central bank run on expectations rather than actual money. And that's the one that most people are picturing. But what we actually see throughout its history, and again, the great inflation is a perfect example. And it's also a, a very relevant example to the last you know, 14, 15 years of our own experience, because it's in some ways exactly the same thing, just flipped in the other direction. If the euro dollar's expansion in those early days contributed to, and I think explained more of the great inflation than anything else so far, then the euro dollar's malfunction since 2007 explains the disinflation, the lack of inflation, the lack of economic growth. And the official, the official, especially central bank response to this last 15 years has been exactly the same as during the, the great inflation. They try one thing, it doesn't work, so they try to do more of that same thing. It doesn't work, so they try to do more of that same thing. In the same way, you can see the, the transition from a, a couple swaps leading to Rusa bonds in the early 1960s, eventually becoming massive swaps, exchange stabilization fund, and then Carter bonds in the late 70s, almost 20 years later, We've experienced exactly the same thing in our own recent times. We started out with a small QE that was focused on one thing that became a bigger QE focused on a couple of things. And now it's market support and QEs and buying of pretty much anything that's out there. And yet every time we're told, you know, Carter bonds are different from Rusa bonds. Well, QE6 is different from QE1. No, it's they keep doing the same things in each case because they don't know what they're doing. It's incompetence. And that's that's really the default position of the central banks. And I would argue also econ economics. They don't take, as you were just pointing out, they don't take monetary scholarship seriously because monetary system, especially an open-ended supranational currency, doesn't fit into a DSG model in any way. It creates all sorts of infinities and singularities that break down the math. And so economists and central bankers have said, we'll just ignore these things and hope it don't bite us in the ass. One week ago on April 9th, the United States of America announced what the latest producer price index figures were. And they were at decade highs in part two of this episode, we're going to ask Jeff Snyder if he retracts his belief in deflation, if these latest numbers have convinced him that he's wrong, and what sort of penitence he's going to pay for leading us astray. <laughs> Jeff, you're not too happy about that. All right, let me... Yeah, uh, let me give you my frowny face. <laughs> <laughs> but first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, are you worried your monetary policies are causing lurid levels of inequality? Are you concerned civil war, its hour come round at last, slouches toward K Street? Do you worry how your supple neck will fare when the blood-dimmed tide is loose? Then the new Eurodollar Enterprises second skin neck brace is for you. Yes, strut through the wasteland knowing that marauding lynch mobs of war boys pose no danger. The carbon fiber nano weave is comfortable, flexible, and the ultimate luxury in an April dystopia you hasn't. 
barter aqua cola for gasoline at Thunderdome with no concern of the guillotine. Is that the road warrior with a chainsaw? Then save your skin with your second skin, neck brace. New from Eurodollar Enterprises. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a moment ago, I said that Jeff is going to pay penitence and he's going to beg our forgiveness because a week ago on April 9th, the United States said producer prices had reached decade highs in the rate of change year over year. And Jeff, how do you, you know, I mean, who is on your side now saying that this is transitory? Nobody. Inflation is here, Jeff. And how, how do you... How do you explain yourself? What, what are you going to say now? I'm going to say I'm very, very, very uncomfortable. Very <laughs> uncomfortable. First of all, because I'm going to also say that producer prices are indeed at a decade high. That is absolutely true. That is a fact and it's incontrovertible. And because of how I interpret that decade high, it puts me in the very, very uncomfortable position of being in agreement with one J. Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve. With the article that we're discussing, it was posted at Alhambra Investments blog on April 9th. And the title, if dear audience, you want to read along, it's scorching, blistering, highest in a decade. Powell's the voice of reason here. And we don't get immediately to the most recent PPI explosion. Instead, we go back a few years and we go back to the age of Bernanke, 2011 and 2012 when something similar happened and incredibly something similar was heard from Bernanke that we're going to be hearing from Jay Powell as we'll discuss later. Take us back in time. Well, so you're already your skepticism should be triggered here. Yes, decade high sounds really, really, really impressive and maybe in some ways it is, but just doing some simple math, it's 2021, subtract 10 years, that gets us to 2011, 2012, somewhere in that period which uh, uh, that didn't turn out quite the way it was supposed to have either, right? So, in, in, you know, going back to the 2010, 2010, 2011, 2012 period, we're already on alert that, okay, we've seen this before and we know we kind of know how it turned out back then. And so maybe the highest in a decade doesn't necessarily mean what it sounds like it's supposed to mean. And <clears throat> excuse me while I clear my throat from shock. At the, and I'm showing a graph right now, and we're looking at PPI. Uh, we're looking at the index value, and then the rate over the rate of change year over year. And you've you've got the data all the way out through 2011, and you've got a very nice line that serves as our trend. That's kind of our goal is to get back to recovery. And we see 2010, 2011 strong surges. But guess what, Bernanke, this is the part that I was a little bit shocked about. In September, he says this, September of 2011, I believe it was. Yes. However, inflation is expected to moderate in the coming quarters as these transitory influences wane. In particular, the prices of oil and many other commodities have either leveled off or have come down from their highs. He's watching the show, Jeff, in the, from the future. <laughs> no, and it's simple, it's, a lot of it's just simple mathematics. First of all, when you have a severe deflationary shock coming out of it, the percentages are going to look amazing because 
if you go way down, coming way back up, or even part way back up, just by simple arithmetic, the numbers look huge. And what he was saying is that, look, for one thing, inflation prices have rebounded from extreme lows set in 2009 and then revisited in some to some extent in 2010. So we have in 2010 and then again in 2011, these enormous base effects, which are making particularly commodity rate related uh, indices look very, very strong in a way that they really weren't. So base effects was one thing. Yes, prices are coming back, but does that necessarily mean sustained inflation? And that's really what we're talking about, sustained inflation. What Bernanke was saying is, look, the combination of base effects plus commodities, commodity prices rebounding, and the commodity prices rebounding contributing to those base effects was not a sufficient condition for saying, look, this is going to turn out to be an inflationary, uh, inflationary that he was looking for or anything more than that. And you say, but the, they did make an assumption. Yes, they got that part right. The part where they went wrong was in how they expected the economy to actually recover. And now we're pulled up the same graph essentially, but now we filled in all the way through 2012 and we see how that PPI year over year falls to a very low level. And then the index levels out and it never gets back to that trend that trend that would signal some sort of recovery or back to what we had experienced before, or even if it was overwrought, inflation, which is what they were after. Yeah, what Bernanke was saying, and he was actually right, and the, where he went wrong was in expecting that this was going to happen because of QE and monetary policy. But what he said was, look, commodity prices, rebounding, base effect, these kinds of things are good signs. Those are things we want to see because it tells us that we're no longer we're no longer in the contraction phase, right? We're coming out of it. But it's it's it may be a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient by itself to to lead us into recovery. And what he meant was, and what he was looking for in terms of actual inflation. And let's be, again be specific when we're talking about inflation here. What we mean is not just the price of one thing or another going higher or food prices going up. It's the sustained advance in pretty much everything. Now, what he what they what the Federal Reserve is targeting is a low level sustained advance in the price of everything. But that inflation is that it's not something it's not a short term spike. It's not just one category or another. It's a sustained broad based increase in consumer prices. And he believed that that was going to happen, just not not as soon as 2011 or 2012, because by then he was already realizing that the, the economic recovery was a little bit too shaky. It wasn't going as well as planned. I mean, I think it was Mohammed Al Arian from PIMCO had already called it the new normal by then, which was the idea that something wasn't right here. And what Bernanke was saying is so because the recovery isn't coming along the way we thought, it's we're going to have to give it more time. So these base effects recede, the commodity prices start to level off, you're going to see inflation indices come down too. And he was exactly right about that part. You know, just a very quick pet peeve of mine. New Normal by Mohammed Al Arian, Secular Stagnation by Larry Summers. Larry Summers. Why can't they say depression? I'll tell you why they can't say depression. Because they were put in charge of preventing such a thing from ever occurring. Okay, it's not a great depression. Fine, good job. It's still a depression. That's why they don't use that word. If they did, it would say, Who's at fault? The economists. Okay, moving on. That was just, it always bothers me when I hear these euphemisms. So inflation is 
we don't want just producer prices increasing or just prices. We want an inflation. We say it's good, which is hard to believe because it means employment has been brought to near or full capacity, right? And therefore wages are up and businesses are paying people more and therefore inflation is right. rising. Bernanke, Bernanke was saying in 2011, transitory factors are what we're seeing. We want to see non-transitory factors contribute to price increases, which is just what you said. It's an economy that's reaching full employment, an economy that's recover, actually legitimately recovering to the point where businesses feel they have to raise prices because they're competing for workers. There's, there's a shortage of where all the good things that we associate with economic recovery. And so in that sense, inflation isn't a bad thing. Again, I'm, this is not my opinion. I'm just, I'm, I'm just telling you what uh, central bankers and economists believe. They say that when you see a little bit of inflation in that situation, that's a good thing. It's a good sign. It's a sign that things have returned to normal and have, have gotten to the point where we've reached our potential, which is the best anyone can ever ask of any economy anywhere in any time. And so the inflation sign, the non-transitory inflation that he, the Bernanke would continue to talk about for the rest of his tenure, as well as Janet Yellen and Jay Powell, because it never showed up. They kept looking for this non-transitory inflation because that was the signal to themselves and the rest of the world that their quantitative easing policies and zero interest rates had actually boosted economic growth to the point that we had returned to the pre-crisis potential. And it just never happened. And that's where Jay Powell steps in, in the tradition of Ben Bernanke saying, yes, okay, PPI, base effects, huge increase, but that's slack that employment stack, we're nowhere near full capacity. Therefore, these will just be transitory. I'm gonna pull up a graph of the same sort of graph we've been looking at, but moved ahead to 2021. And we see the exact same thing that Bernanke saw in 2010, 2011. Yeah, and it's interesting, Emil, right? That Powell used the ex almost the exact same phrasing as Bernanke did. I mean, in the quote that I, I think I put in the article, he said transitory, I believe he said the inflation the expected inflation mm -hmm. this year is transitory. And of course, he's gotten, like Bernanke did in 2011, he's gotten all sorts of grief over it because people, inflation and consumer prices is a very emotional topic for many people. And again, far be it for me to defend the guy, but I think in this case, he's, he's like Bernanke was in 2011, they've got it exactly right. These are transitory inflationary factors that aren't really inflationary factors. They're simply mathematics of consumer prices rebounding off of last year's extremely low levels. That's really what we're seeing. All we're seeing is the initial rebound. That's not the same thing as recovery. It may be the first step toward recovery, but it's not a sufficient condition by itself to be it. And what Powell is saying is that, look, the economy is in really bad shape. And the reason he's saying the economy is in really bad shape, because unlike Bernanke, Powell, Powell has something that he can point to and say, oh, I can blame COVID. This isn't my fault. I've got somebody I can be honest. To. I can say things that more honestly than Ben Bernanke ever could, because I can say, hey, there's this pandemic thing going on that's preventing economic recovery. And I can be more open with it. Whereas Bernanke had to be very careful in 2010 and 2011 because the thing that was hindering recovery back then was that global financial price thingy that was supposed to be of, supposed to have been solved by the you know this heroic Federal Reserve action. But it's interesting that here we have Jay Powell being the voice of reason in the exact same way, and he's being criticized in the exact same way as Bernanke in 2010 and 2011, when we saw the rebound, the initial rebound in not just uh, commodities and producer prices, but also in consumer prices too. That is a very perceptive analysis, Jeff. And I would 
I, I, we should end on it. That would be a good way to end the show is it's because of COVID that uh, Powell can get away with this. But I'm going to pull up a few graphs now. We don't have a lot of time. It, and you did go over this in your Macro Voices appearance yesterday on the 15th of April with uh, Eric Downson. It was a great show. I just, I'm going to pull up a few graphs that show, even if we don't look at COVID, that the monetary system is telling us there's a problem. And the first one I'm going to pull up is the U.S. yield curve. So we've done this before, but just as a reminder for people who maybe are joining us, what is the monetary system telling you about where we are and that this inflation that we're seeing in PPI will be transitory? Well, Powell's version is that, look, pandemic changed everything. The economy was, was operating really, really well. It was booming before COVID and COVID wrecked everything. And that's just not the case. What the market is saying is that we're still in the same lack of growth, lack of inflation, disinflationary rut that we'd been in since Bernanke, since going back to August of 2007. And so the market is saying, we agree with Powell, but for very different reasons. Yes, the inflationary aspects, what we're seeing now, the rising prices, commodities rebounding off their low, even these decade high PPIs are unconvincing. They're not very compelling because like what Bernanke said a, de a, dozen, a, decade, a decade ago, that these are just transitory factors that will quickly dissipate. And that the non-transitory inflationary factors that we need to see to transition into recovery, to tell us that we're transitioning to recovery, those remain conspicuously absent, which is what Jay Powell's position is, but for different reasons. So Powell and the market are actually agreeing, if not, to, if not for the same exact uh, underlying premise. And I've got U.S. nominal treasury yield. This is the 10-year note, and you're comparing the current reflation to reflation 1A and 1B. And the current reflation is up, as it should be, but it's sort of meh, not really. The next graph. Yeah, which you would expect, right? If, if we were seeing this difference, if something different had changed, come along, we would expect to see the yield curve Euro dollar futures curve, whatever it might be, would be behaving very differently than it has during these reflationary episodes in the past, which are very similar in how they work out. And we're not seeing that we're, in fact, as you point out all the time, Emil, this reflation number four is the weakest. It's by far the weakest of all the, of the entire bunch. We're not even close to what Bernanke was seeing in 2010 and 2011. We, we're, we're way, way below it in every single dimension. And those dimensions included the nominal yield curve, long-term inflation expectations as determined by markets. Uh, what else here? The break-evens, which we we're discussing on previous shows, the household survey, and what else? What other graph are we here? Real yeah, this is yields. A, I think the real yields are really the one of the biggest uh, signals right. that that this this you know the real yields are the tips nominal which tells you what the market is thinking about actual legitimate economic growth, economic growth moving ahead. And we're not really that far off of record lows. And that's the market saying that, yes, we see, we see uh, commodity prices rebound. We see you PPI. We see you at a decade high. But that's just nothing more than, again, what Bernanke was talking about and Powell has talking about recently, transitory effects that are not going to have, that do not signal anything different in an underlying economic condition that is absolutely atrocious. 
In part three, we are going to discuss a very specific bond. Normally, we talk about bond yields and we talk about the whole curve. But ladies and gentlemen, I want you to hold on to your seats because we're going to be discussing bond 91282CBN0, and you're not going to want to miss it. <laughs> All right. See, now you're rolling today. You really got, you got it today. <laughs> all right so ladies and gentlemen jeff jeff snyder the head of global research and i are 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 hopeless cases because we're laughing hysterically over the fact that we're not just going to be talking about the bond yield curve no ladies and gentlemen we're not going to be talking about one particular tenor of the u.s treasury market we're going to be talking about a specific bond, 91282CBN0. It was the, uh, it's a dis direct descendant of uh, numerous Star Wars, uh, what, robots and... Uh, droids. Yeah, droids, absolutely. But it's got a, it's, it's going to serve a good purpose, ladies and gentlemen. I promise, I promise it will. Jeff, we're talking about an article that you posted at Alhambra Investments on the 14th of April. And you said, it's right there in the title, why only that specific one? So this bond is a two-year bond. Now it's interesting because the two-year bond, no, it's, I keep saying bond. It's actually, what is note. it? It's a note. Yes, right? it's a note. And it's those things used to mean something. The difference between bill bill bonds and notes used to have legal legal ramifications, and they, they kind of get confused together nowadays. But yes, well, that's, that's a two year note. Well, that's interesting. If you want, tell us about the legal ramifications. But if not, tell us about just set the scene. Bills are doing this. Bonds are doing that. And here's this note in between. Tell us. Yeah. Where, what the context is. We've talked about the short end of the curve, the bills. They've been overbid to the point where the front end of the curve is, is flirting with zero, still flirting with zero. And then all the bills out to 12 months are getting compressed downward, 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 which isn't such a positive signal, especially in the context of treasury bills, repo collateral, those kinds of things. At the opposite end into the bonds and the long-term notes, like the 10-year and the seven-year even, those obviously have been selling off, especially you know January, February, in some way, into, in part way into March, the, the notes and the long end treasuries have been selling off rather rather more significantly. In between them, the between the long end notes and the bills is the two year note. The two year note has kind of been yo yoing back and forth between sort of the negative non reflationary picture in the bills and the more resolute or seemingly resolute reflationary trade in the in the longer term treasuries. And it kind of gets, it's, it's been a pretty volatile mess and mix for the two years. And I've pulled up a graph from your article here where we're looking at the two-year constant maturity, which I would describe as sort of the theoretical yield should a particular two-year bond exist on that particular day. And it's interpolated from the two years that do exist and other tenors. And what do we see? We see some, I would say, yeah, like you said, it's uh, percolating, it's fluctuating back and forth. But the one that we're interested in, the one that you have a red arrow to, says record lows 
And that date, ladies and gentlemen, if you have been following this show for a little bit of time, will immediately pop up on your radar screen. You will perk up when I tell you that the date of this auction was February 23rd. Tell us what happened just two days later, Jeff. Well, February 23rd, this two-year auction we're showing you was perfectly fine, perfectly normal. In fact, it was well within all parameters that have been established for the two-year note auction. So February 23rd, two-year auction, and it was a big one too. It was another 60 some odd billion or 60 billion of, of two-year notes that were auctioned, which, so, which is at the elevated post-2020 uh, post increase in, in debt. But, but Jeff, you say perfectly normal, but then you've got a line here that says record lows for the auction <laughs> well, yeah. high yield. It wasn't perfectly, perfectly normal. normal for that, that particular yeah, case. They were people the auction high yield had never been lower for a two-year consummaturity bid. No, yeah, not you can see where the, just you know, the median auction yield is down around nine basis points, which is about two basis points underneath the secondary market pricing. So it was, a, yeah, for that period of time and for the last, you know, however many years, an auction that goes off in this kind of a fashion, yes, record low yield, but that's that's a tip, that's typical for, for uh, typical contained or continued demand for U.S. Treasuries at auctions, that dealers are there, they're bidding, they're overbidding. There's plenty of plenty of, of of potential buyers at these things, willing to pay whatever price they have to. Two days later, Jeff, it was pandemonium. Cats and dogs were living together. The dead were rising from the grave. The U.S. Treasury yields surged, not just the two-year but all the way across the board. I've got a few quotes here. Let me read them. Investors haunted by February's grim seven-year auction, which stirred concerns about the health of the treasury market, are paying keen attention to the upcoming sale of debt. Investors are bracing for a trio of large U.S. government debt auctions this week after a recent sale of seven-year notes flopped and set off about a frantic trading. Quote, investors will remain on pins and needles until the auctions are behind us, said Gennady Goldberg, a rate strategist at TD Securities. Another quote, people can't say that what happened on February 25th won't happen again, said a managing director in the rates division at a large US bank, adding that they were, quote, increasingly concerned. Quote, until investors are comfortable knowing the Fed's tolerance for higher rates, it is unlikely that most treasury buyers will want to catch a falling knife for higher yields, said Megan Swibber, a rate strategist at Bank of America. And then Kirk Lazarus for Tropic Thunder Securities said, time to man up. I ain't gonna sugarcoat. Some of us might not even make it back which prompted some traders in the back who were concerned to say, what do you mean? Like not on the same flight? Jeff, there was fear in the markets. It was it. This was the big one, February 25th. What happened? February 25th, as they all said, seven-year auction flopped. It was, it was, you know, lowest bid to cover in its history. Suddenly there was, you know, basically uh, dealer participation was sort of, you know, mediocre. I mean, all sorts of things that, outside the normal of what we had come to expect. You see the auction yield pricing way, way, way up above where it had been trading the day before. And it just, it was a total and unbelievable mess. And we, 
I think most people remember that day because the, the, the entire treasury curve sold off, particularly the five-year note, which had an enormously awful day. And maybe don't realize that there was this seven-year note auction that happened during the same day. And it was after the seven-year note auction that ha- the results of the auction had been announced that the uh, treasury sell-off really started to pick up in its most, uh, you know, most uh, uh, violent fashion. So the seven-year note auction on the 25th caused, oh, you know, people have been, oh, there's too many treasuries that the Fed, is, you know, the Federal Reserve needs to, can't tolerate higher, higher interest rates, reflation, inflation's coming. All of these things seem to be, at least they seem to fit in these mainstream narratives that the treasury market was toast. And here we have finally, finally, for the first time, perhaps ever, a, uh, a actual auction that didn't that went so poorly that people could point to and say, "Look, we've been telling you that there was a danger of too many treasuries and too much inflation for a long time. Here it is. Finally, we've got the busted auction." And after that, every auction after that went off terribly. Isn't that right, Jeff? And it's been proven since then that indeed the U.S. government has lost its moorings. The it's time to be punished. The bond vigilantes are here. Isn't that what happened? Yeah, inflation's out of control, all this other stuff. No, and that's, that's, the, that's the curious thing about all this is that every single auction since then has been right back to where we were before. You go to the 10-year, the five-year, the two-year, whatever, whatever maturity you want to look at, even the seven-year, the seven-year auction that was conducted in late March. And there's another coming, coming up in another week. Um, 10-year note auctions. There was a 10-year note auction before and after this February 25th event. They went off fine. There was a 10-year auction earlier this week that was right on the screws. I mean, so no, none of those things were true. The market could not have could not have taken its inflation, inflation fears and put them into the treasury auction process. It could not have said there's too many treasuries. We're now becoming buyer. You know, it's now a buyer strikes of vigilantes, as you said, Emil. It was only that particular auction that went so poorly. Just that one, just that seven-year note. And the seven-year note didn't didn't really matter. It just happened to be the one that auctioned on that day. And so what we're focusing on is why February 25th? It may not have mattered what 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 instrument the the treasury sold that day. That was the day it went bad. It's every day before, every day since, it's been the same. Treasury auctions go off fine. Plenty of dealers, plenty of bidders, plenty of all the things that we associate with, you know, high demand for safe and liquid assets, except for February twenty fifth. Jeff, I have one of these new technologies. It's called a calendar, and I believe you do have one as well. And I'm looking at this calendar. And you know what I've noticed? That between February 23rd and February 25th is something called February 24th. And for the audience that have has been there in for episode 49.2, 46.1, and 52.1, you know where we've, we're going because we've been talking about it for a long time. Jeff, February 24th, what happened? And more importantly, was it something huge or does it speak to another, uh, just the general weakness that any little spark will halt this progress towards recovery? Yeah, February 24th in the afternoon, the Federal Reserve announced that Fedwire had been interrupted for an operational clerical error, whatever they're calling it nowadays. It's never really been explained. And honestly, yeah, the way you frame it. the question is actually true, is that it shouldn't have been anything we would, other than a minor curiosity, quickly forgotten. And the only reason we're even still talking about it 
is not only that it, it connects February 24th to February 25th, but more importantly, it seems like it has it is the inflection point that shows up on every single chart around the world. We look at February 24, 25th, 26th, you see Japanese government bond yields, for example, which were highly inflation, reflationary, the same as, as in the United States and US Treasury. Why would they stop being reflationary on February 26th? German federal securities, buns and shots and bulbles and all those you know, weird named things, <laughs> same exact thing. They were highly reflationary like Japan, like, Japan, like treasuries. Then they stopped. All of a sudden, the inflation trade stops. Why would a busted seven-year auction, which is supposed to be the market saying, inflation's, inflation's coming, it's all coming too much. Why would reflation embedded in causing that seven-year auction to go so badly end reflation everywhere else around the world? And not just everywhere else around the world, but as we've seen before, in the tips market. Real yields peaked February 25th as well, which is a reflation. You know, they were reflationary and rising. So why would reflation busting an auction on February 25th end reflation in every other corner of the, of the world? And it gets back to the question, why was February 25th auction so you know, monumental that it shows up in all of these different places. And the only thing we can connect it to is the day before this Fedwire disruption, which really shouldn't have been a big issue. But then you start to think about what does the Fedwire disruption actually mean? It's not a disruption in Fedwire so much as it is a disruption in the monetary plumbing, which would absolutely affect dealers. The same dealers who, by the way, were conspicuously absent on February 25th in the way that they had been dependably, uh, acted dependably beforehand. So if the Fedwire system tripped up and caused the dealers to step out of the February 25th auction, which seems to be the case, then that's a signal of fragility that just like September 2019 repo, when something unanticipated goes wrong, dealers cut back when they're supposed to do the opposite. We need them to step in when things are going poorly. So in the terms of February 25th, what should have happened under a robust system is absolutely nothing. The auction should have gone off exactly the way they had before, exactly the way they have since. There would have been no huge sell-off in the treasury market, which is another sign of illiquidity. And what that, what that seems to have transmitted to the rest of the global marketplaces, uh-oh, we may have a problem here. As much as things seem to be going right, the system's flooded with bank reserves and you know inflationary excesses, government fiscal spending, all, all these positive liquidity aspects, allegedly, we have an example of a very tiny thing becoming much more than that because no, the system may not be as robust and as resilient as otherwise it's, it's been said. The image that for some reason jumped into my mind is of the dog from Call of the Wild, Jack London's story. At the beginning of the story, he's being abused, that dog. He's being beaten over the nose with a newspaper constantly. He's been trained to be afraid, and that's what we see with the dealers. It's been 14 years with the Eurodollar system and the central bank incompetence and the political lack of leadership. They've gotten used to any sort of little wobble they just stand back. And this, this was some, just the, the latest incident. 
Jeff, yeah, but, and it was in, it was in the treasury market. It was a treasury auction, the big violent treasury. And so it wasn't the fact that yields rose in, as a consequence of the treasury sell-off. It wasn't a reflationary increase in interest rates that, that the market took from this. What the market saw was illiquidity, mm -hmm. that even treasuries had sold off so badly because there was so little liquidity in the treasury market. What does that suggest about everywhere else? It suggests that risks are material and materially greater than we're led to believe they are. So it's not so much that February 24th and Fedwire matters so much. It, that's not really the issue. Symbolic. Here. Right. It's just a tiny little thing that led to a bigger thing. And really, again, chaos theory, Mandelbrot, and all that stuff. When you see something small become something large, especially in very short fashion, it's a sign of fragility and fragility, not just in a, you know, a naked general term, but fragility in, in the sense of a complex system that is not robust. And that's really, I think what the global marketplace has said is, whoa, hang on here. Everything was supposed to be going right. Now you have this little nothing happen, lead to this massive liquidity problem. I got to start rethinking my whole reflation idea here because Along with other things, maybe things are not going as well as we was, was, were, were led to believe they are. I would love to do a show with you and Keith McCullough talking just about Mandelbrot, complex systems. That would be a fantastic show. Multifractal geometry. Yeah, yeah, that would be a great show. Maybe we can do it. Jeff, I had a wonderful time as always on this episode. I hope the audience learned and found some parts of it entertaining. Uh, thank you, Jeff, and I'll, I'll talk what's, to you again. One last before we go, yeah, what's the name of it. our droid? We, have, oh, we now have um, a name for a droid. 912-CBNO. <laughs> so CBNO, that's our that's our Eurodal University droid, CBNO from, from here on. I believe that it will be available shortly at eurodollarenterprises.com. They are, of course, our sponsor. They're the people that look after that disaffected part of our society that has been long overlooked. The monetary technocrat, the academic economist, and we're very proud to be sponsored by them. Eurodollar Enterprises, get your own CBNO droid soon. <laughs>